Control what you can control. I'm sure you've received this advice many times before, especially in the world of building, where things are on fire all around you basically all of the time. But you know what? Sometimes those things you can't control are still extremely frustrating. For some of us, it might be the world of sports. When we see our team down by one score and the superstar member of the team comes up short, which obviously is frustrating. In our family and friends, we all have that one person who just can't get out of their own way and just want to jump in and help, but you know it'll just make things worse, and I personally have been there many times before. There are some things, though, that you can control, and if you don't take control of that which you can control, it can actually be even more frustrating. And this energy is oftentimes what leads to the biggest innovation, you getting so frustrated with something that you just need to jump in, take charge, and will a new reality into existence. At least that's what happened with today's guest, Ankur Nikpal, who's the founder and CEO of Teachable.com. He had a course on Udemy and got so frustrated with the limitations of the platform on building his customer base that it led him to found Teachable as a world-class course product, now with over 200 team members and thousands of course creators. His experience as an operator out of a place of frustration is extremely valuable for us to learn from, and you'll get an exclusive look into the workings of his mind coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Ankur Nikpal. He talks about wanting to own your destiny, managing shiny object syndrome, when to do the unscalable, how to maintain authenticity as a CEO, and the emotional side of M&A. Who are you? What do you guys do? Um, yeah, my name is Ankur. I'm the founder of a company called Teachable. Um, Teachable helps creators create and sell online courses. It was something that I built the first version being a creator myself. Um, I had courses on, you know, Udemy and our teaching general assembly and built the first version of this product is this age that we had basically as creators. And now seven years later, here we are with, you know, 200 employees and a relatively successful business. What I've always found it like fascinating is there's a lot of these, there's a lot of these companies, like you mentioned Udemy and some of these others that, oh yeah, use our platform on our marketplace. Right. And then where you yeah. kind of came in, at least from my perspective is, no, no, no. This is your experience. Yeah. If someone's seen Teachable before, maybe they know that this is a Teachable course, but why was that so important to to kind of build what you built versus just continuing to use you know, Udemy and things like that? I think we stumbled upon it because we were the creator. I had a course on Udemy with my buddy Conrad and we saw a few big issues with it, right? Like we come from a growth marketing world where we were able to get it to two or $3,000 a month, but there was no way of scaling it beyond that for a few different reasons. One, um, Udemy owned the customer lifetime value. So I would work really hard to like acquire a customer, but they would make all the revenue after the first sale, which was no good. Two, we never owned customer information. So you don't really own a customer. In my last business, I built Facebook apps. So I already had experience building behind someone else's walled garden. It just wasn't a good way to build a scalable business. And third, they controlled pricing. And as a result, Udemy became this place. At Teachable, we used to call it the Kmart of online education, but really like, you know, where discount, it was always like, how could, like, why not get these 17 courses for $10 each? While we were like, how do we, you know, build a premium product? 
So we stumbled into it, to be frank. I mean, it's not like we had this grand vision of like what Teachable would become. We built the first version as like a, let's just build something for ourselves to charge $100 a course, keep all the revenue ourselves and be able to run paid ads too. That was it. And then, you know, we just organically worked with a few customers until eventually stumbling upon the grander vision of all that Teachable could be. Yeah. And when you were, you know, from from university to now, you know, with Amazon, some other Facebook apps, stuff like that in between, like, did you envision like this was the future? Did you envision like, oh, I've always wanted to kind of go after this. I've always been fascinated with education or, or what's kind of, you know, fill in the gap from like university yeah. to now. Yeah, absolutely. So I moved to America for college, went to school at Cal um, and I stumbled into entrepreneurship pretty early on. It was my freshman summer when I was interning at Amazon um, that coincided with the launch of the Facebook platform. So this was the summer of 2007. And that summer was a pivotal moment in my life because I was interning at Amazon where I wasn't professionally fulfilled. I was supposed to be an engineer and I realized I hated engineering. It all kind of came together at once. But I was spending my evenings building these apps on Facebook since they just released this open platform. Um, and by the end of the summer, I started making, let's call it 15 to $20 a day. And those were the most significant $20 a day ever because a switch went off in my brain like, holy shit, you can make money doing things online. You can do things on a computer and earn money from it. So it was a complete game changer. And since that point, like, I, you know, a switch turned in my head that almost made me unemployable where I worked on the Facebook app business for another three, four years, um, made a reasonable amount of money on that, but felt sort of unfulfilled in that. I didn't want to spend the best years of my 20s helping people figure out which friend's character they are, which is what the Facebook apps were. I knew I wanted to build something of meaning in two ways. One, I wanted it to like do some sort of good for the world. And two, I wanted it to be a sustainable business that compounded on itself. Because Facebook apps, we would build this app, it would reach a few million users a day, and then Facebook would change its algorithm and we'd, we'd be dead. We'd go from you know tens of thousands in revenue a day to $100 in revenue in two weeks. So you're building no enterprise value. So I knew I wanted to build something good for the world and something that was a sustainable business. But from that point on, frankly, I just iterated on a lot of terrible ideas um, until stumbling upon this almost by, you know, this is probably idea number 12 or 14 or something, but it just stuck. Yeah. No, that's interesting. It seems like there's a theme there of, you know, wanting to own your destiny, uh, which I think is, is is pretty important. And then also, you know, iterating through lots of sucky things. Yep. I feel like I mean, there were, and, it was and probably like three years of two, three years of not much working, um, had like the intervention where mom's like, I think you should just like get a job. And I was like, mom, how can you, how can you say that? But no, it went through that. And eventually I, you know, ignored, ignored that advice. And, and yeah, I'm very glad that this, this eventually worked out. Yeah. And that was with Teachable or that was with previous ventures? This Teachable was the thing that worked out. So this was the, the two, three year gap in between the Facebook apps and Teachable. Oh, got it. Were you yeah. kind of, for lack of a better phrase, vectoring towards Teachable or were you trying just like a bunch of... I was just trying different things. I mean, tried like built an Android app company that helped other people create Android apps, help people buy their name.com, the grocery delivery thing, just like trying lots and lots of different ideas. Yeah. Nothing quite sticking. Um, one of the worst ones was writing a bot to buy anything that had a lot of search traffic, but had an unregistered.com. And as a result, we just ended up buying 
domain names for lots of B-list celebrities, like on SwedishHouseMafia.net and LenaDunham.org. And I soon got lots of season desist letters. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, it's funny because isn't I, this is so off the topic, but I'm pretty yeah. sure domain trademarks aren't protected. Like you can own yeah. their domain. They can still send you a cease and desist all day, but it's... Like, that, yeah, that, that was enough for me to realize this may not be the most scalable or sustainable thing. But this is when we were trying to build a domain registrar. So, you know, there was a lot of stepping stones onto, onto building Teachable. Yeah, yeah. And so what was the course right before Teachable? Like what was that? You mentioned you had a course with your friend and you to me. Yeah, so we were teaching growth marketing ultimately. It was basically trying to teach a few things like what, how we built and grew Facebook applications, mobile application growth, the things that help other companies with. And I look back now and I'm like, especially from a production quality perspective, these courses are terrible. It was like me with my like iPhone headphones, like, you know, and my computer just recording stuff. But it was a, it was a stepping stone onto, you know, just realizing that even that, like the content I still thought was good. So how do we actually scale this and, and build a real business? Yeah. One thing I always appreciate about you and, and you and I have hung out a couple of times is like, it's not uncharacteristic of entrepreneurs and founders, but I feel like you yep. over index in a really good way of like always cutting to, to the heart and cutting to the straight of yep. like yep. You know, saying what you mean. And so I think that yep. what I'd love to do is just kind of talk through the journey a little bit and maybe get like your emotional and psychological takes on it. Because I yep. think that you have a really interesting journey of you know, obviously starting out low funding or like, you know, no mm-hmm. funding in certain cases, yep. then raising cash, then getting into M&A. And, you know, you've done that in a relatively short amount of time. And so you've gone through all these like terrible, if not bittersweet cycles, yeah. you know, very quickly. So in the beginning here, so you got this course and you're just like, cool, we should, you know, kind of a classic founder mistake mm-hmm. that's always happens, yep. which is, oh, we should do the thing that helps us do this thing. Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. You know, and thankfully it worked out, but what yep. was, what was that first phase? Like you had done some entrepreneurship stuff, but now you're like, you know, maybe not even in the early stages, but you're going all in. Yep. Um, so that process took about six months where we had our own course. Cool. Week two or week three, I started getting on the phone and hounding every single Udemy instructor to get, um, to give us a chance. And we probably had a hit rate of one in hundred, but that didn't stop us because we sent like 800 emails. So that's eight customers. Early on, it was a lot of manual effort. I mean, I still remember me and my girlfriend at the time spending one of our weekends uploading content for like customer number two, he mailed us a flash drive and we didn't have an admin panel. I had to like manually upload stuff to a Dropbox, take the Dropbox link and add it to the database. That was the back end. Um, so we're, we're doing all these like unscalable things for about six months. Um, and in my mind, I was honestly afraid to raise money um, because I felt like it would, this thing would fail again. And now it would, I would just have like an obligation of like disappointing other people. That was one fear. The other fear is I would get distracted by the next shiny object. And therefore not do this. And both those things probably kept me from like pursuing funding for a while. It just like stayed the side project for like maybe six to eight months Hmm. when realistically in a month or two, I should have been like, this is kind of working. Um, But so yeah, for six to eight months, I had this sort of fear, but then at some point, maybe five, six months passed. And I'm like, Hey, I'm actually still just as excited about this as I was six months ago. This has not really happened before. Maybe there is something special here. Um, And that's when I went to California embarked down a fundraising process, which, um, as you can imagine, was like 35 no's until the first yes. And then the next round happened in like, in like a week, but also the no's were not actually no's and those were all like, Oh, love it. Love it. This is like amazing. Yeah. Totally believe this is good. 
um, will you invest? And then it's just like no response. We got our first check and the rest happened in the next week, basically. Yeah. I think VCs invented ghosting. I don't think it's dating. Yeah. I think the VCs yeah. invented it actually. But yeah. um, that's interesting. So you had the shiny object syndrome, you know, the fear and then the obligation. I'm sure a lot of people, if yep. they haven't raised money before, yep. they feel like, where do you think that comes from? And is it misguided in hindsight or is it still something you should worry about? I think the shiny object syndrome is probably something that just it's heavily correlated with the same attributes that make you want to start a company, right? Yeah. Like I think the people that like inherently like new things are the people most drawn to starting companies. So I think the shiny object syndrome is a real thing. Um, the part that was useful for me to overcome it is I also equally have this very strong desire when I see like a graph moving in a certain direction, I want to do lots of activities to keep moving it in that direction. So that dopamine sort of overcame the shiny object syndrome. Um, and that's sort of what gave me the longevity to do that. Um, and the whole idea of like wanting to like not disappoint other people, especially investors, I think some version of it is probably a healthy thing. Like I do think it's good for founders to feel like they have a fiduciary duty with company rate. Obviously you can lose the money. It's totally fine. But like, you know, I've seen founders take it to the other extreme where they think they're doing the investors a massive favor by even taking their money. Like for me, I've always had this like sense, even, even now I'm investing and I've raised money externally from other LPs. And even then I just always feel like I have a very strong fiduciary duty to like one, keep them very informed and like to like be responsible with it in a way that I probably would be less responsible with my own money. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's always interesting because it's, you know, multi-state or yeah. serial entrepreneurs. There we go. They, yeah. they tend to not have that problem. And, and what I'm kind of curious about, you hinted at something that that responsibility piece, do you think it's certainly possible, but do you think that those who are hundred percent owners and, you know, raise money and still have full control and, you know, basically could run things. Do you think those types of founders can be, or are, have a higher propensity to be as successful as those who kind of have like a full board, have a lot of balance, have checks and balances of like needing to, to kind of push things forward? I think, yes. I personally think the whole like, like checks and balances and like the board stuff, I think, I think there's two elements. I mean, I do think it can help to rein in someone who would otherwise be irresponsible. But I personally think it's a little bit of a, fa a self-reinforcing fallacy told by investors to make themselves feel very important and very meaningful on this journey. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like it's a great board. Put it this way, the median board hurts. If you have a 90th percentile board, I think it helps. I think the median board hurts. And I think uh, it's a really good pen. This is for acting. The median board member like is on eight other boards and doesn't really know your business very well. They'll come in with comments like, oh, portfolio company number one, like is having great success in Snapchat. Have you tried Snapchat? Like just like unhelpful ideas. And again, we never had a board that's on our board, but that's that's what I've heard from other people. But an amazing board, I think, can can absolutely help. But again, like I would say that the median board is a, is a bad thing. Yeah. Amazing anything helps, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Is it something where in those earlier days or that first year or so, there was a lot changing, obviously. That's a little bit of an oxymoronic statement to make, but I know you changed the name. You did a lot of different things. First step after, or actually, no, this was while raising funding. I also realized like, okay, I need to like actually hire an engineer that knows what they were doing because I built mm -hmm. the first version of the app myself, which was not complete hire <laughs> fire. Yeah. So I had to do this like wrangling and trying to hire engineers who I was assuring that we had capital while trying to tell the capital that we had engineers and trying to like <laughs> do the song and dance like, like most people do. But we, we pulled it off. Our first engineer, Noah, is still with the company today. He's our CTO. He's That's been here seven years later and could not have you know built it 
without him. And, um, but yeah, the first thing we realized is we had to rebuild all of the technology. Like mm. everything I built was complete garbage and had to be thrown away. And we had to basically start from scratch. So we had this weird seven month period where our newly hired engineering team with, you know, hired five people, um, were trying to build the application that we were doing at the same time. So it took us a while to kind of get out of the blocks there. And it probably was only at the closer to the one and a half, two year mark that we rebranded from Fedora at the time to Teachable. Mm. When you think about that period, so were you solo or did you have co-founders? I had my, my buddy Conrad started the company with me. So he okay. started off as a founding customer. So technically, yeah, initially he was customer number one and I was building it. And at some point, let's call it six to nine months in, we're both like, this thing is like bigger and better, like, yeah, yeah, you know, come cool. on board. So he came on, he came on board as a co-founder then. It was around. Yeah. So one thing that's always fascinating, and, and I try to explain this to people about the early days, is that you were building the product and you knew that it was going to have to be rebuilt probably relatively yep. quickly, right? You're yep. uploading one of those first customers, you know, whole yeah. course without an admin yeah. panel on a weekend with your girlfriend at the time who probably didn't necessarily sign up for that weekend. Like, yeah, that, right? yeah, yeah, like yeah, you have all yeah. these different things that are, you know, garbage fires, you know, that are happening. Yeah. And you know that not only is it a garbage fire, but you have to still go through with it to get the thing done now so that you can get on to the next, next point. Like yep. how do you deal with that emotion or did that affect you? Like, how do you, you know, how do you think about that? For me, my, my mentality and my psychology at the time was very simple. I knew how much revenue we made last month and I wanted to make more this month. So there was a lot of short termism that on a long time scale probably hurt us, but at the time made this company where we did a ton of unscalable things. Like I'll give you an example. We had one customer that was substantially larger than everyone else. Like when they sold at, at the time we made money just by taking a percentage of core sales, but like we would, for us to have a good month, we needed these people to sell something and launch something. Cause they like, we would do like 300 grand a month in sales, but they would do 150. And then November was coming up or December was coming up and they had nothing in their pipeline. And we're like, this is going to be bad. So we got in touch with them. We said, what if we come to you? They lived in Berlin at the time. Like, what if we fly to you the week of Thanksgiving? We like stayed in the house with, with our two best customers and we just recorded a course ourselves. Like we were directing it just so we'd have something to sell the next month. Yeah. Uh, so th that's the kind of stuff we did. And I mean, that turned, they ended up becoming great friends and all that. But we, we literally got on a plane, skipped Thanksgiving and like recorded a course so that we would have something to sell the next month. There's a lot of this like short termism, but it was fine. Like this is while our engineers were building the new version of the app anyway. So Conrad and I were like, we might as well make ourselves useful. How would you explain needing to justify those types of kind of actions to someone who's just saying, Oh, but you got to work smart. You got to work smart. Cause all of those things are just working hard. Like that's all just pure hustle. Right. I thought it was working smart. I mean, again, like I, that's the other thing that's interesting is I've yeah. never like, yes, we work hard from a, like doing things unsustainably and unscalably. I've never characterized myself as a specifically hard worker. I don't think there's a single week. We probably work over like, let's call it 60 hours. And, and even that is not the norm. So I don't think we distinguish ourselves by hard work specifically, but yeah, we wanted it, right? Like we wanted to win. Like there was a very strong desire of like, we don't, we will not accept losing. We will like want to win. So I think early on, that's important. I think as time goes on, if you're still doing that, you've probably built a weak organization. But in the early days, I think it's kind of mandatory. Is there a moment where that mentality switches? Like when you go from, all right, yes, that Berlin trip to get that cash, we can't do that now. Like, or is there a moment where that switches? And, and if so, like, how do you know, or how do you like feel it happening? It's not a discrete moment. It's a continuous moment. And I think it starts happening when you have other teams and other decision makers where 
as a founder and as a CEO, it's actually very possible to do far more damage than help by such activities, right? Like very often you can entrust a team to do a certain plan. There's too many CEOs, myself included, and you know, who will accidentally bulldoze an entire team's plan. It's very demotivating for the team and you're actually causing harm. So I think at that point, you start realizing that it's more about being thoughtful and the strategy and kind of thinking longer term than throwing your weight of like, effort or hustle or whatever behind it. Yeah. That's a really important concept because I think in the early days, I don't know how you would describe it, but I would describe it as like hierarchy is kind of important because there's just so much stuff that reactively needs to get done. And you probably wouldn't characterize it as hierarchy because there's just like four of you. Right. But like, it's really important just to like, so got to get this done. We got to stay up late to do this. We got to fly to Berlin. And then very quickly, as you get to that next stage, hierarchy becomes a liability because you have smart people like Noah who are like, Don't tell me, dude, I'm the one who knows these things. Like you need to convince me to change my priority versus just doing what you say, right? Is that kind of how you'd characterize or what do you think on that? That's a big factor. You bring in experienced leaders, they're running their own team. It also reaches a point where you think you know more, but you probably know less about the day-to-day operations. Like you don't have as much information. Early on, you have complete information. As there's more teams doing more activities, you have incomplete information and you're probably making net worse decisions for for everyone. The other thing that's also important to remember is at the time we were building this, we were all in our mid twenties and you know, you obviously grow older and you're maturing as the company grows up. But a lot of the things you did early on, just like right now, we have a lot of executives and with family. So it just, you, you know, you can't be like Connor and I was a no brainer for us to like, just bounce and like spend Thanksgiving in Berlin. And it was like, not a big deal, but like, as the company grows, you just don't do these things anymore. And it's the right decision not to. So this, I'm trying to like boil this down to its first principles, right? Like, I guess it really comes down to like a prioritization problem, right? So you're kind of following the reactive patterns in the early days, and then you start noticing some trends and then you start prioritizing some of these trends, which means you're hiring someone you're hiring, you know, Noah's becoming yep. a CTO yep. with these types of things. Looking back, is there a place that you can look that's not necessarily just revenue where you can be like, okay, this was the moment where we went to the, from the chaotic reactive stage to the chaotic proactive stage, I guess is that that's how I'll characterize it. Yep. Um, it was still driven by revenue, but I want to say at about the two and a half year mark, we hired Andy, who's now co-founder of Circle, but at the time he came in as our first growth person. And he kind of brought a little bit of a framework where at the start of every month, we decided what we wanted to grow by. At the time, there were big, exciting numbers like 30% and 40% month on month. And then we would take that and try and distill it down into a model of exactly where every single dollar of revenue would come from. Like it was a very simple spreadsheet, but we expect we're going to churn 7% of people. All right. And then we would like be like, okay, maybe we do four webinars. Each webinar will account for a thousand dollars. And then eventually we'd realize there's something missing between what we wanted to do and what we were going to do. And then we try and find additional hustle type activities to make up the difference. We ran with that framework. I want to say for probably until about year four or five, and that had downsides. Like it did sometimes cause short termism, but I am very comfortable to say was a big factor in our success, you know, sort of having this single-minded dedication mm. towards like what we need to do to grow, figuring it out before the start of every month and eventually, you know, more than a month out. Um, and then doing a post-mortem after being like, did we hit? Did we miss? Why did we miss? Um, and just being pretty disciplined about it. From what you described, if I'm understanding correctly, you basically ran a monthly cadence. So it was like first day of the month or last day of the former month, just like, what are we doing next month, et cetera? Like, 
would you have kept that cadence or would you have gone to maybe a quarterly or, or maybe a little bit longer planning cycle? I would have definitely started with the month. I'd have probably moved to quarterly sooner than we did. We probably kept the monthly thing going for too long and burnt out a lot of people, including ourselves. And I just, the numbers became silly. We're like, oh, cool. Now we have to add like $250,000 in new MR this month. It's just like the math just started getting harder and harder. And we had to like build more scalable stuff. But I've seen too many companies do the opposite and like just think growth will come. Like we, we went too hard in one direction, but I still think that's a better mistake to make than tons of companies I've seen who are like, growth will just happen, you know, we'll just build a good product and people will come. Um, we never, we never did that. You're very intentional. Yeah. When you talked about burnout there as a founder and exec, what I found at least, and I'm curious if you found this is like the burnout in the early days is a little bit different than the burnout in that next phase Yep. because the early burnout is, I think just literally surface area, just doing yeah. a bunch of things. And then the secondary burnout or the next stage burnout is more emotional. Would you characterize it that way? Or how do you think about like the difference in burnout that you, you notice? I've had, I've had many kinds of burnout. Um, very rare is it the like I'm working too hard. The two most common types of burnout I've gotten is like almost like this emotional pain. There are a lot of times as an executive where I feel like there is an inherent conflict between what you, the human, would do and what you, the responsible executive, should do. And it's also why, frankly. What's an example of that? The closest example is, I don't know, like a lot of people don't like to form friendships at work, right? They're just like, uh, work is work. That is not my personality. Again, for better or worse, I like put myself into everything I do and like I can't hold back. Yeah. Uh, but there have been times, right, where there's a conflict between, you know, like the most extreme example where a friend of yours may not be working out at the company. And there's those kinds of things where... What that does is at every point has caused me so much pain that it's been bad enough that I've been like, I don't think long-term in my life, I want to be an executive because I personally believe you cannot be true to your values and principles as a human and be the best CEO out there. I just don't think it's possible. Maybe other CEOs have that ability, but I just don't think it's possible. So, which is why like on a very long-term basis, I don't see myself as like wanting to be a CEO specifically. Like I think being a founder is great. Um, and I think a lot of founders feel that way, but if you know if someone were to ever be like, do you want to be a hired CEO? I'd be like, no, it's terrible. What's the disconnect there? So you're saying it's it's really hard to, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, like be yourself and be a good CEO. Is that a simplification of what you said? It's a simplification, but I just think to be a good CEO, right? At some level, you're optimizing an entire business. You're looking at everything. You're looking at people as resources. That's not congruent with my values as a human. There's still just a lot of conflict. Again, for instance, were to happen where if there's someone who you know is a phenomenal person, but they're terrible for the business, things like that kind of keep bubbling up. Again, and this is my opinion, a lot of people you know, do not think these things are in conflict, but I personally think like being a very, very good executive while being true to yourself is, if not impossible, just very hard. Yeah. Is it because it wears on you where it's like, it's not the you know first 20, but it's the 21st time that you kind of have to make this really rough decision and that's when you're out? Is that, is that the idea? I think it wears on you. I think it's something that perhaps this is part of my personality where I, you know, for me, like, like harmony is important and you have to sort of get comfortable with this state of being in disharmony and learning to have the tough conversations and doing these things sort of on a very consistent basis to the degree it almost becomes robotic, which to me starts feeling like I am becoming a different person than I am. Like, it's just like a lack of authenticity, right? Like I value being authentic a lot, but there are times where you just cannot be authentic because 
as a CEO, you should not be showing vulnerability, right? Because it might bring other people down. Mm. And every single time for me, I have to be like less authentic. It's a slight energy drain, not a big energy drain, a slight energy drain. So that energy drain compounds over time where whenever there's a disconnect between like who you are and what you're actually feeling and what you have to pretend to be, that's the draining. And I think doing that constantly leads to a certain form of like, you know, burnout, almost like a burnout of hypocrisy. On the exec side, is it almost like you have this obligation? Because what I'm what I'm curious about is, you know, let me give you a scenario. Like I think you and I know some personalities where the CEO and, and the founder, they, they typically don't have investors. They don't have like some of these obligations, but they're very, very good at like being completely themselves. And they run the company mm-hmm. exactly how they would want to. They're okay with the trade-offs. Like, oh, you know, yes, Joe is okay. If we let someone else in there, he they would be better, but we're okay with Joe and, and his level. Yep. Like, is it more just that disconnect where you're just like, I feel like an obligation to do the what's best for the number, but I don't want to do that myself. What do you think is that root there? I think that's a part of it, but I also think, and again, there's probably better CEOs out there who might be able to maintain that sort of authenticity. But to me, I think it's really hard for anyone, especially once a company reaches a certain size. I think, you know, when you're 10, 20, 30 people, you can kind of be who you are and be fully, fully authentic and sort of true to your values as an individual. Um, But the bigger the company gets, the more there is a disconnect. But frankly, I think that's normal and a good thing for the business. So, yeah. Well, there's a cost to it. I think the costs just go up because especially with, you know, all the hot button issues going on the past couple of years, it's like if you said something that, you know, maybe wasn't as clear or precise and you don't know the employee number 194, that's where it, you know, ends up being problematic. Or or, yeah, very classic example that a lot of people tout, but like as a human, loyalty is a very important value to me. Theoretically, as an executive, you can argue if you're loyal to someone that's been there since day one, has been very loyal to you, but doesn't scale with the company. And if you don't replace them, that's not the right executive decision. And again, that's an oversimplification, but that's just like one example of like, you know, your values and good CEO values that are just different. In defense of this theory, that's an oversimplification that happens probably in every single company. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, well, you exactly. know, Judy, she's been here so long. Like she knows everything. Yeah. Obviously, you're still you're still in the game now, but you're looking at a long enough timeline. You know, there's just a scale that you're probably like yeah. that 21st thing has happened. How do you hedge this right now? Like, how do you hedge being as authentic as possible with hundreds of team members and like these types of things in order to not have those disconnects? Yeah, I mean, look, we're still, I, I would like to believe most people on our team still find this organization to be the most transparent organization they've worked at. And at least most of my direct reports to find me amongst the more transparent bosses they've ever had in their life, if not the most. So we still strive and work hard at it. I mean, you've seen, we're pretty public about our numbers. We're pretty upfront about a lot, lot of stuff. Everyone in our company knows like at least prior to the acquisition, how much was in our bank account, right? What is our burn? What are we spending money on? Um, so we try and be very, very transparent about everything except salaries. Salaries is the one thing we've, yeah. after lots of pros and cons, decided we will not be public about other people's salaries. We try and instill that value of transparency manually. But obviously, the bigger the company gets, the harder, the harder all of these things are to scale. How was it from a kind of investor standpoint and then obviously you went through M&A like how did that shift or how did that affect this did it make it worse better yep. and, and just yep. the emotions on that stuff all around yeah absolutely so our investors are 
amazing, fully caveated with our company has done well. And the real test of investors are when things go poorly. So I don't, I don't have that experience, but our investors, our investors are great. It was also, we were very thoughtful in how we raised money until we sold the company. I still personally controlled over half the company in common stock. And I had two out of three board seats. So I was in complete unilateral control of the company until acquisition. So obviously investor dynamics are different when you still run the show, but we had Jeff, uh, from Accomplice, who started Accomplice, who I, th- I think you know. I mean, they're, they're very close. They're very close to you in Cambridge. So yeah, so he's phenomenal. I mean, I I want to work with Jeff for the next like forty years of our lives. Like he and I are both very independent people. Um, and as a result, we work well together. Where he's like, you're on your business. Just let me know how I can help. And we both operate on a very very similar wavelength. Um, so it, so that was great. Our board meetings, because it was two people, our board meetings would be like breakfast or lunch or dinner or something yeah. um, with lawyers usually dialed in being like, why are they talking about <laughs> irrelevant things? Because someone has to take minutes, right? So our investor dynamic was great. I mean, even the even the acquisition, this is not the best outcome for accomplice. Like it's good, but like, you know, like their preference would obviously be like for us to be like, nope, let's, you know, thousand X, thousand X to this, thousand X to that. Again, Jeff's He's a good person. And I think he's someone that I think does represent his personal values and what he does. And he's like, look, whatever you want to do, we're, we're on board. Sign, sign me up. And they ended up not just doing the deal. They actually ended up reinvesting in the company, buying us to like just double, double down in a big way. So That's cool. I don't know if you strike me as a guy or a founder who's got like, this is my baby, don't touch my baby syndrome. But there's still always that element, right? Did you seek this out? I'm assuming they sought you out. And then like, was it just purely mechanical in your mind? Or was it kind of like, I don't know if we should do this? Like, how how did you think about that? Yeah, so this was, they they found out we're not looking or anything. Yeah, yeah. General Atlantic, actually, the private equity slash VC firm, proposed this idea to us. They're like, hey, there's this company in Brazil. I'd not heard of them. And they're like, these are their revenue numbers. And I was like, they're lying because I would know a company this big they're like just take the meeting right and i took the meeting and yeah exactly but what drew me to them was a couple of things the first thing was there was a founder-led founder-driven company two founders had started it they were still around almost 10 years later that was one two is their numbers are just actually phenomenal and this just made good business sense right you put these businesses together you all of a sudden have a true international company doing this they're not trying to innovate our products. We're just trying to like both run as fast, take the collective company public in 12 to 18 months, whatever. It just made phenomenal business sense. And the deal itself was good. I mean, they um, gave me, you know, founder level equity, founder voting shares in the parent business. Like it didn't feel like it was this like acquisition. It felt like you were becoming part of something bigger, um, yeah. which, which honestly thus far has lived up to my expectations. Yeah. If that wasn't, you know, there's a lot of pieces there, but if, if that was, wasn't the feeling, I'm assuming you just wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have done it or I would have asked for like five times more money. Yeah. There's a lot more money involved. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'd have asked for five times more money and I would have then like been like, cool. You know, I will like prepare paths to not be at the company in 18 months, but yeah. no, here I'm like all in. I'm excited about what we're doing. I'm sure this kind of shifts depending on how the transition period goes and how they like treat you guys versus yep. you know because some some MA it's like you are integrate like Oracle. They're like they take out yeah. you know anything that's unique and yeah. it's all Oracle, yeah. now, right? How was it like from an emotional standpoint for you and the team? And and was there anything you had to do when you're like talking to the team? Because I'm sure you were yeah. like, hey, um, these things aren't gonna I was, change. I was so, 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 so nervous about it. Like, like I don't think I've ever been as nervous about anything as Obviously, a leadership team is part of the process, but like telling the broader company um, and the part that made it 
even more interesting was the day we told them was both the day New York City went into a COVID lockdown and the biggest <laughs> stock market crash in history. <laughs> so it was, I think that probably went fine because people, everyone who I thought would freak out was like, this is like the third most important thing that's happened today. I think it went about as well as it could have. We put a lot of time and effort into like, I mean, we wrote up like a 20 page FAQ doc. We had like four emails triggered sent at a certain time, but a blog post going out at a live all hands in the office and only four people showed up to because we had to shut the office down. It was a, it was a fun, fun experience, which ended up with us like, you know, sitting around drinking a bottle of whiskey from like 3 p.m. onwards. So it was, it was a good day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure there's things that they kind of promised you were like, mm, probably not. And they actually fulfilled them, which is fantastic. Yep. And then I'm yep. sure there's like some little things where it was like, oh, that's how I, not how I thought it was going to go. You don't have to get necessarily into those things, but yep. how, how did you handle that emotionally? Because I, I can imagine going from, you know, for lack of a better phrase, colloquially, like top dog yep. making the decisions or yep. just influencing yep. decisions. You know, what, what was that like? So there have been a bunch of things, but thus far, at least they have acquiesced and we pushed back. So there are lots of occasions where, you know, and we pushed back, but, you know, they have acquiesced. And in general, it's been very good. Again, it's been say it's less than six months. We're still in honeymoon phase. So let's, let's, let's give it some time. But yeah. thus far, it has, it has been that. I also think um, from a pure financial perspective, no one knew, but this has worked out to be an incredible deal for them, right? Because of all that's happened in online education, like yeah. our business has doubled since we did the deal. Yeah. Uh, in a way, in <laughs> six months, six months, in a way that I we never thought good, so, I hope there were some good accelerators yeah. there. That's what yeah, I'm yeah. I think, but then again, their business has grown at the same rate, if not faster. So it's not like, you know, so from a relative perspective, at this point, we're equity holders in the joint companies. The joint company has done very well. But yeah, it's still a phenomenal deal for the people that put together the deal in a way that I'm sure it exceeded their best case projections. So they would have modeled out what this could be. And this has far exceeded that. The rise of like, you know, a lot of online education. Where does that come from with COVID exactly? Is it just that people don't have enough time? Like obviously if it's stuff to do with schools, it's a little more obvious, mm -hmm. but but where where did that really come from? In, is it an acceleration or is it something that you're just like, eh, I'm worried it's going to subside? I think it's I think it's a true acceleration. I think it brought a lot of growth forward though. Like I think the people acquired are not going anywhere, but you're not going to sustain that rate of growth. Um, so what we saw is a lot of people, very early on we realized the number of people who in their mind want to create a teachable course and in their mind they're like, I'm going to create it in the next 12 or 24 months it's actually massive a lot of people just don't put in the effort like the, there's a huge unit like even when I'm out at any conference so many people are like six months from now is when I'm going to launch this course and the, so in some ways it's a customer that is not a customer but we've almost mentally won their mind in some ways but this brought that forward a ton a lot of people who had other income streams got very very nervous and actually launched their course the amount of like it, it would take us about 60 to 70 days for someone to have their first sale after signing up. It came down to like less than 30 days. The number of new people signing up increased by 2x. Like all those metrics just accelerated like crazy from March through June. And now we're still doing well, but a lot of it is because of that acceleration during that period. So it just brought a lot of, lot of customers and revenue forward. Ultimately. Yeah. And if we take a huge step back, you know, we talked a little bit about the beginning, the middle, and it's not the end, but the, you know, the M&A side of it. What's something that you kind of wish you knew from an emotional and psychological perspective, like in the early days versus like now that you've gained some of that wisdom? This is going to sound cheesy as hell, but like, I guess people say this always is like, 
I don't know, like we look back on the early years and like just truly realizing that they were the best years, like nothing, nothing wrong with like this growth stage and stuff, but like from a, you know, like some of the memories we have as a company and also just like the sort of collective identity we formed as a group of humans, um, that was something special. That was something we may not have again in our lives in a lot of ways, right? Because it also, you have to be a certain age and place in your life. Um, but those days were just, you know, truly, truly phenomenal. And I think for a lot of people, a lot of the connections they made during that period of time um, are something they'll have for the rest of their life. So it would be cool to have had a heads up during that period of time that this is what was happening versus looking back in retrospect. Yeah. Cheesy cliche things are yeah, yeah. cliche for a yeah. reason because they're true. Yeah. So uh, I yeah. like that. Awesome, man. Where can people find you? Uh, Twitter is probably the best place. Just my full name, Uncle Nalpo. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate this. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, it's been a blast. A huge shout out to Anker for dedicating his time to the podcast. In this episode, we talked about wanting to own your destiny, managing shiny object syndrome, when to do the unscalable, how to maintain authenticity as a CEO, and the emotional side of M&A. Oh, and if you want to support ProfitWell in the show, we would appreciate it if you leave a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen and watch. The podcast gods tend to like that type of thing, and we like to appease the podcast gods. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. 